Hello and welcome to another episode of Analyzing Mormonism. It has been a minute since our last podcast, and I apologize for that. We went on vacation to Montana, and we also bought a house and moved, so that's the reason for all this delay. For this next episode, I reached out to the Mormonism's Research Ministry and asked them permission to read their little booklet called The Palmyra Revival and Mormon Origins by Reverend Wesley Walters, and they said I could totally read it. So that's what we're talking about today. We're going over the Palmyra Revival in 1820. I hope you guys enjoy it. The Palmyra Revival and Mormon Origins by Reverend Wesley Walters. Introduction. A short memoir of Wesley Walters. Who was Wesley Walters? Why did he research the early history of Joseph Smith so exhaustively and uncover the factual evidence of the false basis on which Mormonism was built? Wesley Walters, 1926 to 1990, as a high school student and non-practicing Baptist, was planning to go on to the Maryland Institute of Art and become an art teacher. When he first heard the almost unbelievably good news of the genuine Christian gospel, it seemed too wonderful to be true. He was amazed that God would really forgive all his sins and count him pure and righteous if only he would turn to God in repentance and accept Christ. Wes marveled that God's son had loved him so much that he died for all of his sins. Accepting this wonderful offer, Wes turned to God and the Holy Spirit completely changed his life through a small Presbyterian church and Christian friends. He went on to seminary to become a minister, took graduate courses at Pittsburgh Xenia Seminary in Pittsburgh with Dr. John H. Gerstner, in one of which he wrote a paper on Inspiration in Mormonism. Later, when he was pastoring a United Presbyterian Church in the small town of Marissa, Illinois, where he remained for 33 years until his death, he went out to Salt Lake City, where he was cordially received by Mormon leaders and also talked to local Christians. He was aware of the first printed record of the origin of Mormonism and Oliver Cowdery's letters to W.W. Phelps, published in Cowdery's Messenger and Advocate in Kirtland in 1834 and 35. In letter three, Cowdery described the revival in which Mr. Lane preached and in which, in common with others, our brothers, Joseph Smith's mind became awakened. When his mother, sister, and brothers joined the Presbyterian Church, Joseph was unsure which church was right. On the 21st of September, 1823, Smith was in prayer for a manifestation in some way that his sins were forgiven. When in his bedroom, a messenger from the skies appeared, who assured him that his sins indeed were forgiven. Furthermore, the Lord was about to do a marvelous work and wonder, and would give him the record of a correct knowledge of the gospel and the plan of restoration and redemption. The messenger then revealed to him where this record was deposited underground. Since this was the first revelation to Joseph Smith, and followed a revival, it must have been the same first vision following the revival later related by Smith. However, it differed to some extent in motivation, and the supernatural beings who appeared, and certainly in date. Cowdery explicitly says it was 1823, while Joseph dates it to a beautiful spring day in 1820. Walters wrote in his brief article that the first vision story was not published until 20 years later and now somewhat altered. Christianity Today received an indignant letter from a BYU scholar protesting that the first vision story had never been altered in date, content, or in any other way. Christianity Today passed the letter on to Wes for a response. Now that he had been challenged on this point, Wes decided to research the date of the vision more carefully. Maybe he had been wrong. When had it actually happened? Smith and Cowdery must have had the same event in mind, since both were prompted by a revival. And since Joseph's mother, sister, and brothers were said in both to have joined the church as a result of the revival. As a pastor, Wes knew that a revival leaves records in the church membership roles, which are carefully kept. Joseph Smith expressly had stated that great multitudes united themselves to the different religious parties. Wes wrote to the churches in Palmyra, asking for their membership roles, 
from 1819 to 1823. The Presbyterians' first book of records that would have covered those dates had been lost. The Palmyra Baptists did not start until a few years later. The Methodists were not even an organized church at the time, just a preaching point on a circuit with no records of membership. But West did not give up. He was intrigued by the challenge and continued the search. The religious publications of the day were very interested in writing up revivals near or far. A revival of the magnitude described by Joseph Smith would have been of great interest to them. It would have been written up, especially by the Methodists, with whom Smith alleged that it started. West went to the local Methodist college. The first one started in the Illinois Territory, which had old volumes of the Methodist magazines in its archives. He looked through the old issues beginning before 1820. He found many glowing articles about revivals, but nothing about Palmyra. He continued through 1821, 22, 23, 24, finding nothing. I'll go through 1825, an easy date to remember, he thought. In the April 1825 issue, he was thrilled to find Reverend George Lane's own personal account of the great Palmyra revival. All the characteristics described by Joseph Smith were present, but the date was the fall and winter of 1824 and 25. Now that he had the date, West found many more write-ups of this excitement. He also located the Baptist church records. They were with a branch of the church in Macedon, the next New York township. The Presbyterian church records, as they were reported to the Synod, the Methodist circuit membership all showing very large increases in 1824 and 25, but little or no increase in 1819 and 1820. He himself was surprised with what he found. When he first published the results of his research, it was described by a Mormon religion professor as the bomb that fell on BYU. Mormons have tried in every way to disprove or get around this, but without success. Honest scholars now admit that it is true. West believes most certainly that truth and facts must underlie all genuine religious experience. He continually studied the Bible in the original languages and in the light of archaeology and found, like the great archaeologist William F. Albright, that there was no known fact in archaeology that conflicted with the Bible. There is also no known fact of science that contradicts the Bible. He also continued to research the facts underlying Mormonism. He found that the story of Lucy Mac Smith, and even an incidental remark of Joseph's, also indicated that an 1824-25 date for the revival was correct. He found the tax rolls, showing when the Smiths contracted for their farm, and when they built the cabin on it, which also backed up this date. He found the many variations in which Joseph Smith related his first vision, and the changing emphasis which reflected his changing situations, casting grave doubt on whether it really happened, or whether it was just a means for building up the faith of his followers. Together with the Apostle Paul, Wesley Walters' greatest desire for all Mormons was that they might be saved, Romans 10.1. Helen Walters, 1924-2005. Preface Mormons account for the origin of their movement by quoting from a narrative written by their prophet Joseph Smith Jr. in 1838. In this account, he claims that a revival broke out in Palmyra, New York area in 1820, which led him to ask God which church to join. The result of this prayer was a vision of both the father and the son as two separate personages, telling him all the churches were wrong and promising him more revelation. An account published by the Mormon leaders in 1834 and 35 placed the revival in the year 1823, omitted any reference to the vision. Information which we have uncovered conclusively proves that the revival did not occur until the fall of 1824, and that no revival occurred between 1819 and 1823 in the Palmyra vicinity. To maintain that Smith's story is true, that an 1820 revival occurred, is therefore no longer possible. To suggest that Smith was merely mistaken in his dating would require drastic alteration of his narrative at several subsequent points. We show that Smith began with a story to explain his activities substantially different from the one told by the Mormon church today. He altered and expanded the story in several steps 
as occasion required, finally arriving at the present position, Reverend Wesley P. Walters. Mormon Origins in the Palmyra Revival Since the year 1838, when Joseph Smith Jr. set down the official account of his first vision, the story has continued to grow in importance in the eyes of Mormon leaders until it has come to be looked upon as the very foundation of their church and the greatest event in the world's history since the resurrection of the Son of God. The first vision story states that Joseph Smith in the year 1820, when he was but a lad of 14, was greatly stirred by a religious revival that broke out in the vicinity of Palmyra, New York. Uncertain as to which church he should join as a result of this excitement, Joseph retired to a nearby grove where, in answer to his prayer, two glorious personages, identified as the Father and the Son, appeared to him, informing him that all the religious denominations were wrong. He was told to await further enlightenment, which came three years later in a second vision on September 21, 1823, when an angelic visitor to his bedroom informed him of the existence of the golden plates of the Book of Mormon. This account of Joseph's first vision has recently been given more careful study because of a number of difficulties that have been uncovered. The earliest Mormon and anti-Mormon writers know nothing of such a vision. The text of the present printed version has been altered at several points. The early leaders in Utah repeatedly speak only of angels and not of the father and son visiting Smith at age 14. These and other conflicts have forced Latter-day Saint scholars to write in defense of their prophet's first vision. In all their writing, they have always assumed that Smith's account must be correct, wherever it is at variance with the statements of other Mormon writings or writings from non-Mormon critics. However, the point at which one might conclusively test the accuracy of Smith's story has never been adequately explored. A vision, by its inward, personal nature, does not lend itself to historical investigation. A revival is a different matter, especially one such as Joseph Smith describes, in which great multitudes were said to have joined the various churches involved. Such a revival does not pass from the scene without leaving some traces in the records and publications of the period. In this study, we wish to show by the contemporary records that the revival, which Smith claimed occurred in 1820, did not occur until the fall of 1824. We also show that in 1820, there was no revival in any of the churches in Palmyra or its vicinity. In short, our investigation shows that the statement of Joseph Smith Jr. cannot be true when he claims that he was stirred up by an 1820 revival to make his inquiry in the grove near his home. In 1834 and 35, nearly four years before Joseph began to write his first vision story, the Mormons published an account of the origin of their movement written by Joseph Smith's right-hand man, Oliver Cowdery. Cowdery claimed to have received his information from the prophet himself, and Joseph in a separate column added some details about his birth and early life. Like Smith's later account, Cowdery begins the story with a description of the revival that broke out in the Palmyra area. However, Cowdery makes no reference to any vision occurring in 1820 and dates the revival in 1823. According to his version, Joseph at age 17 was stirred by a revival that broke out under the preaching of a Mr. Lane, a presiding elder of the Methodist Church. Retiring to his bedroom, he prayed for forgiveness and enlightenment on which church was right. In response, an angel appeared and informed him about the golden plates and assured him of his forgiveness. Except for Smith's moving the revival date back three years and adding the first vision story, both Smith and Cowdery record the same features as connected with the revival. In both accounts, the revival began under Methodist preaching, Cowdery adding the name Reverend Lane as the key figure in the Methodist awakening. Both state that soon Methodists, Baptists, and Presbyterians were sharing unitedly in the effort. Both claim that rivalry developed over who should have the converts. Both mention the large additions that were made to the denominations involved. Both note that Smith's mother, sister, and two brothers were led to join the Presbyterian Church. In both accounts, Joseph refrained from joining any church because he was confused as to which group was right. Finally, in both accounts, 
he sought direct guidance from the Lord about this matter and was answered by the visit of a heavenly personage. Mormon writers have for some time seen that both Smith and Cowdery had the same revival in view. This is quite clear not only from the identical features in both accounts, but also from the fact that some of these features could not have taken place twice. For example, Smith's family could not have joined the Presbyterian Church in 1820 as a result of a revival in the area, and then joined the same church again in 1823 as a result of another revival. Again, Joseph Smith Jr. could not have been confused about which group was right in 1820, but enlightened that all were wrong, and then had been confused on the same point again in 1823. It is also extremely unlikely that churches which had had a bitter outcome to their united efforts at a revival would have joined forces again just three years later, only to end in another bitter contention. Recognizing that both Smith and Cowdery are describing the same revival, Mormon historians have always credited Cowdery with the error in dating, but have been quite willing to accept the other details given by Cowdery and to work them into the 1820 framework. We find LDS writers like historian B.H. Roberts and Apostle John A. Witzo speaking of Reverend Lane as participating in this 1820 revival. An account by William Smith, Joseph's brother, adds the information that it was Reverend Lane who suggested the text from the book of James, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, to which Joseph refers as a means for determining which group to join. William also introduces the name of Reverend Stockton, the Presbyterian pastor, as presiding at the meetings. This information, since William does not give a specific date, is also placed back in the year 1820 and used to fill out Joseph Smith's account. However, this very account of William Smith to which the LDS writer so willingly referred for details indicates that the revival did not occur in 1820. William states that after the joint revival meeting had closed, Reverend Stockton insisted that the converts ought to join the Presbyterian Church, since it was their meeting. However, William states, as Father did not like Reverend Stockton very well, our folks hesitated. William had already mentioned the reason for his father's dislike of Reverend Stockton. Mr. Stockton had preached the funeral sermon of William's brother Alvin, and had strongly intimated that he had gone to hell because he had not been a member of any church. Since the tombstone on Alvin's grave gives the date of his death as November 19, 1823, it is clear that the revival must have followed that date. William earlier gave the date of the revival as 1822 and 1823, and on another occasion he stated that Joseph Smith was about 18 years old at this time, which would make it about 1824. In order to maintain the integrity of Joseph Smith's first vision story, however, Mormon writers have not only charged Coucher's narrative with error, but also have dismissed the setting given by William Smith and arbitrarily transported both Lane and Stockton back to an 1820 date. The records, however, of both the Presbyterian and Methodist churches to which Mr. Stockton and Mr. Lane respectively belonged make it clear that neither of these men were assigned to the Palmyra area until 1824. Reverend Benjamin B. Stockton, from March 4, 1818, until June 30, 1822, was serving as pastor of the church at Skinnedles, New York. While he did visit Palmyra for a speech to the Youth Missionary Society in October of 1822, the Palmyra newspaper still described him as Reverend Stockton of Skinnedles. The earliest contemporary reverence to his ministering in the Palmyra area is in connection with the wedding of November 26, 1823, just a week after Alvin Smith's death. Following this date, there are several references to his performing some services there, but he was not installed as pastor of the Presbyterian Church until February 18, 1824. It is in this latter year, 1824, that Reverend James Hodgkin, in cataloging the revivals that occurred in the churches of Geneva Presbytery, writes under the heading of the Palmyra Church that a copious shower of grace passed over this region in 1824 under the labors of Mr. Stockton. A large number were gathered into the church, some of whom are now pillars in Christ's house. In the summer of 1819, Reverend Lane, whom Mormon writers have correctly identified as Reverend George Lane, 
was assigned to serve the Susquehanna District in central Pennsylvania, over 150 miles from Palmyra. He served this area for five years, and not until July of 1824 did he receive an appointment to serve as presiding elder of the Ontario District in which Palmyra is located. This post he held only until January of 1825, when ill health of his family forced him to leave the ministry for a while. Any revival, therefore, in which both Lane and Stockton shared, as the accounts of Oliver Cowdery and William Smith both indicate, has to fall in the latter half of the year of 1824, and not in the year 1820. An even more surprising confirmation that this revival occurred in 1824, and not in 1820, has just recently come to light. While searching through some dusty volumes of early Methodist literature, at a nearby Methodist college, imagine our surprise and elation when we stumbled upon Reverend George Lane's own personal account of the Palmyra revival. It was written not some years distant from the event, as the Mormon accounts all were, but while the revival was still in progress, and was printed a few months later. Lane's account gives us not only the year 1824, but even the month and date. By the aid of this account, supplemented by numerous additional references, which we shortly thereafter uncovered, we were able to give nearly a month-by-month -month progress report on the spread of the revival through the community and surrounding area, and it was indeed an outstanding revival. According to George Lane's report, the Lord's gracious work in Palmyra commenced in the spring and progressed moderately until the time of the quarterly meeting, which was held on the 25th and 26th of September, 1824. A note in the local Palmyra newspaper showed the progress of the work shortly before Lane came upon the scene at the September conference. A reformation is going on in this town, to a great extent. The love of God has been shed abroad in the hearts of many, and the outpouring of the Spirit seems to have taken a strong hold. About twenty-five have recently joined a hope in the Lord, and joined the Methodist Church, and many more are desirous to become members. As yet the revival had not touched the Baptist Church, for at the annual meeting of the Ontario Baptist Association, held September 22nd, the Church reported only two baptisms. The local Presbyterian Church likewise remained untouched, and the report of the meeting of the Presbytery, held September 8th, stated, There has been no remarkable revival of religion within our bounds. About the time of the Methodist Quarterly Conference, September 25th and 26th, the revival, Lane tells us, appeared to break out afresh. About this time, the revival fires must have spread through the Presbyterian Church, for the Synod which met October 5th acknowledged that gratitude to the great head of the Church for instances of special revival, among which was that in the Church of Palmyra of the Presbytery of Geneva. November found a fresh encouragement given to the movement through the death of a 19-year-old girl who had been converted just five weeks before, following the September Quarterly Conference. She died in great happiness and, as Lane stated, it greatly strengthened believers, especially young converts. By December, the revival had spread into the area, beyond the bounds of the town. When George Lane returned to the circuit of the Quarterly Conference at Ontario on December 11th and 12th, he states, Here I found that the work, which had for some time been going on in Palmyra, had broken out from the village like a mighty flame, and was spreading in every direction. By December 20th, reports had reached Avon, some 30 miles distant, that about 200 are shares in this great and precious work. When Reverend Lane left the area December 22nd, he noted that there had in the village and its vicinity upwards of 150 joined the society, besides a number that had joined the other churches, and many that had joined no church. The Baptists were among the other churches who shared in the harvest. Many hearts were so open that they needed only the invitation in order to respond. On Christmas Day, a Baptist preacher wrote to his friend that, As I came on my journey this way, I tarried a few days and baptized eight. By the end of January, the effects of the revival upon the town had become apparent. The whole religious tone of the village was altered by its impact, 
In glowing terms, the Committee on the State of Religion within the Bounds of Geneva Presbytery was able to report, In the congregation of Palmyra, the Lord has appeared in his glory to build up Zion. More than a hundred have been hopefully brought into the kingdom of the Redeemer. The fruits of holiness in this revival, even now, are conspicuous. The exertions for the promotion of divine knowledge are greater than formerly. Sabbath schools, Bible classes, missionary and tract societies are receiving unusual attention, and their salutary influence is apparent. Meanwhile, the revival fires continued to spread in the neighboring towns, and men began to take stock of the number of converts. A Baptist pastor in Bristol, New York, reported to a friend under the date of March 9, 1825, that in Palmyra about 300 have united with the Baptists, Presbyterians, and Methodist churches, and to each in about equal numbers. The Palmyra newspaper for March 2, 1825, reprinted a report from the religious advocate of Rochester. More than 200 souls have become hopeful subjects of divine grace in Palmyra, Macedon, Manchester, Phelps, Lyons, and Ontario since the late revival commenced. This is powerful work. It is among old and young, but mostly among young people. The cry is yet from various parts. Come over and help us. There are large and attentive congregations in every part who hear as for their lives. Since the religious advocate was a Presbyterian-related periodical, the figures probably reflect only the Presbyterian gains. A note in the same issue of the Palmyra paper adds this balancing information. It may be added that in Palmyra and Macedon, including Methodists, Presbyterians, and Baptist churches, more than 400 have already testified that the Lord is good. The work is still progressing. In the neighboring towns, the number is great and fast increasing. By September 1825, the results of their revival for Palmyra had become a matter of record. The Presbyterian Church reported 99 admitted on examination, and the Baptists had received 94 by baptism, while the Methodist circuit showed an increase of 208. Cowdery's claim of large additions, and Joseph's statement that great multitudes united themselves to the different religious parties, were certainly not overstatements. When we turn to the year 1820, however, the great multitudes are conspicuously missing. The Presbyterian Church in Palmyra certainly experienced no awakening that year. Reverend James Hodgkin's history records revivals at the church as occurring in years 1817, 1824, 1829, etc., but nothing for the year 1820. The records of Presbytery and Synod give the same picture. Early in February 1820, Presbytery reported revivals at Geneva, summer of 1819, and Genius First and Segua, lately, all a considerable distance from Palmyra, with prospects of a revival at Canandaigua and Phelps. 15 and 25 miles distant. While the effects of these revivals were reported in September 1820 as continuing, the remainder of that year and the next show no distinct mention of a revival, no special revival in any of our congregations, no general revivals of religion during the year. Since these reports always rejoice at any sign of a revival in the churches, it is inconceivable that a great awakening had occurred in their Palmyra congregation and gone completely unnoticed. The Baptist church records also show clearly that they had no revival in 1820, for the Palmyra congregation gained only six by baptism, while the neighboring Baptist churches of Lyons, Canandaigua, and Farmington showed net losses of four, five, and nine respectively. An examination of the figures for the years preceding and following 1820 yields the same picture of no revival so far as the Baptist church in the area is concerned. The Methodist figures, though referring to the entire circuit, give the same results for they show net losses of 23 for 1819, 6 for 1820, and 40 for 1821. This hardly fits Joseph's description of great multitudes being added to the churches of the area. In fact, the Mormon prophet could hardly have picked a poor year in which to place his revival, so far as the Methodists were concerned. For some time prior to 1820, a sharp controversy had existed in the denomination, which in the Genesee Conference had resulted in a decline and a loss of spirituality 
throughout the entire conference. In addition, the presiding elder of the Ontario District reported July 1st, 1824, that four years since, Unitarianism, or Arianism, seemed to threaten the entire overthrow of the work of God in some circuits on this district, and on some others, divisions, and wild and ranting fanatics caused the spirits of the faithful in a degree to sink. Referring to the years just prior to 1823, he added that, for two or three years we saw no great awakenings. In the light of such depressing circumstances, it is impossible that Palmyra could have experienced a glorious revival, and yet the presiding elder of the area have failed to take note of it. Another significant omission lies in the area of the religious press. The denominational magazines of the day were full of reports of revivals, some even devoting a separate section to it. These publications carried over a dozen glowing reports of the revival that broke out in Palmyra in the winter of 1816 and 1817. Likewise, the 1824 and 25 revival is covered in an equal number of reports. These magazines, however, while busily engaged in reporting revivals during 1819 to 1821 period, contain not a single mention of any revival occurring in Palmyra area during that time. It is unbelievable that every one of the denominations affected by such a revival such as Joseph Smith describes is happening in 1820 could have completely overlooked the event. The only reasonable explanation for this massive silence is that no revival occurred in Palmyra in 1820. In light of this new historical evidence, what lines of approach are open to the student of Mormon history as he considers Joseph Smith's first vision story. Some may still try to imagine that a great revival happened in spite of the evidence against it. We are convinced, however, that they will meet with no more success than Willard Bean's attempt to substantiate Smith's story. Bean, a Mormon and one-time sparring partner of Jack Dempsey, has put together an account that some Mormons are still appealing to. According to Mr. Bean, a revival did break out in the spring of 1820 sparked into the ministry of Reverend Jess Townsend, whom he describes as a young Yale graduate recently set apart for the ministry. The revival started the latter part of April, and by the 1st of May, was well underway. Bean adds an account from the religious advocate of Rochester to show how extensive the awakening was. All of this sounds very authentic until one begins to examine the story more closely. Jesse Townsend was not a young Yale graduate in 1820, since he was 54 years old, and 30 years had expired since his graduation from Yale. He was not recently set apart for the ministry, for he had been ordained in 1792. Instead of sparking a revival in Palmyra in the spring of 1820, he was in reality on his way west, arriving near Hillsborough, Illinois, May 25, 1820. Furthermore, the religious advocate did not begin publication at Rochester until 1825, and the account which Mr. Bean quotes from that journal is the same one which appeared in the Palmyra newspaper in March of 1825, in reference to the 1824 revival. In over a hundred years of historical study, this is the best confirmation that the Mormon writers have been able to produce. We do not believe that this avenue of approach will yield any fruitful results. A more attractive option is to assume that Joseph's first vision story is essentially correct, but that his memory failed him as to the date of its occurrence. If we pursue this line of thought, several major revisions will have to be made in Joseph Smith's story. Since Joseph presents his vision as occurring in the spring, the date of the vision would accordingly have to be moved to the spring of 1825 following the revival. This would then also necessitate changing the date of his second vision from September 21, 1823 to not earlier than September of 1825. In turn, this would require another change in his story, for he mentions visiting the hill where the plates were buried in each of the three years that elapsed between 1823 and 1827. The revised date would allow for just one visit in the year of 1826. With this much readjustment, Smith's memory for events becomes somewhat suspect. Furthermore, such a realignment of dates calls for an entire recasting of the context of the story. 
Instead of being the naive boy of 14, as he presented himself, he would in 1825 be a young man of 19, who in less than a year will find himself in court charged with vagrancy and fraud, and before a second year has expired, eloping with a young woman from Pennsylvania. Furthermore, this reconstruction would only aggravate the problem of harmonizing Smith's final and official account with another First Vision account written earlier by the Mormon leader himself. This narrative, which has been dubbed a strange account, had remained locked in the archives of the LDS Church until brought to light by Paul R. Cheeseman in 1965. Unlike the official account, which presents Smith as wondering at age 14 which church was right, the strange account presents him as having, from age 12 to 15, studied the scriptures and already concluded that all were wrong. Instead of seeing two glorious personages at age 14, he sees at age 16 only the Lord Jesus Christ, who confirms his conclusion that all had turned aside from the gospel. Finally, in the strange account, he admits that at first he sought the plates to obtain riches, while in the official version he receives only a warning to beware of such a temptation. This strange account substitutes Joseph's Bible reading in place of the revival as the predisposing factor for his heavenly inquiry. Cheeseman regards this strange account as a first draft of his first vision story, which he laid aside and never completed. If we feel that Smith's memory was hazy in his official account, a comparison with the strange account would lead to the further conclusion that his memory was extremely confused. The matter is far deeper than a mere lapse of memory as to dating, for it enters into the very fabric of the story itself. A third, more realistic approach is that Joseph began with a substantially different story than the one he put forth later in his career. He altered and expanded the story in several steps as occasion required, ending up with the official version he published in 1842. Space allows for nothing more than a sketchy outline, but the development, we believe, based on all the available accounts, was somewhat as follows. The earliest form of the story, which the Smiths circulated, was that Joseph Jr. had discovered the plates through the aid of the seer stone, which he used to locate buried treasure. Just a year after the Book of Mormon appeared in print, the editor of the Palmyra Reflector noted that Joseph Smith Sr. followed the popular belief that these treasures were held in charge of some evil spirit. At a time when the money-digging ardor was somewhat abated, the elder Smith declared that his son Joe had seen the spirit, which he then described as a little old man with a long beard, who told him he would furnish him with a book containing a record of the ancient inhabitants of this country. At first, the story had no regular plan or features, and several variations have been preserved by those who knew the Smiths. In October 1827, when Martin Harris first heard that Joseph Smith had unearthed golden plates, he visited the Smith home and interviewed each of the members independently. All, including Joseph Smith Jr. himself, gave the same story. He found them by looking in the stone found in the well of Mason Chase. Harris's narrative makes it clear that Joseph had already determined to produce a book, but needed someone to back it financially. Since Harris was deeply moved by religious ideas, Smith added that an angel had told him to quit the money-digging business, and that he had been shown Martin as the man who would help him with the new project. Harris replied, If the Lord will show me that this is his work, you can have all the money you want. A still small voice told Harris to become financially involved, and he ultimately became one of the witnesses for the new publication. From this point on, the story takes on a religious tone, with an angel taking the place of the spirit as custodian of the plates. The reflector, however, is careful to point out that it is well known that Joe Smith never pretended to have any communication with angels until a long period after the pretended finding of his book. Once Joseph had put forth his claim to angelic visitation, a new situation had to be dealt with. He had to explain how it was that one with a questionable reputation who had never even joined a church should be favored with such a special visitation from heaven. W. W. Phelps, who in 
who lived for a while at the neighboring town of Canandaigua and later joined the Mormons, pointed out that the objection was soon raised that if God were going to reveal anything, it would be to some great person in the church. Smith's answer is to admit his sinfulness, and his story is changed so that he no longer finds the plates in his search for treasure, but they are revealed to him in search for forgiveness. He has not joined a church because he was shown that they have lost the truth, which can only be restored when the plates are translated. His story, however, still lacks an element that will explain the motivation for his search for forgiveness. Sometime after 1830, possibly 1833, he drafts his strange account in which he sets forth his Bible reading as producing the awareness of his need for forgiveness and his conclusion that all churches were wrong. This approach is abandoned, however, possibly because it might have seemed out of character for him to have shown such biblical literacy. A better motivation was found in the revival led by Elder Lane, which had occurred, as he recalled, about 1823. Thus, late in the year 1834, the story is published through Oliver Cowdery that, stirred by this revival in September of 1823, he was answered by an angel visitation to his bedroom. Not content to halt here, late in 1835, Smith is still making improvements to his story. On November 9th, 1835, he told his story to a visitor who called himself Joshua, the Jewish minister, and related how in a silent grove, two personages had appeared to him, adding that one of them had testified that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Apparently, Joseph at this point intended his two personages to be nothing more than angels, for he not only adds that he saw many angels in this vision, but also five days later he told Erastus Holmes that the first visitation of angels occurred when he was about 14 years old. This would account for the confusion that later developed even among the church leaders in speaking of Smith's first vision as an angel visitation. In telling his story to Joshua, Joseph made no attempt to fit it into the framework of the account his paper had published earlier that year, for apart from two Bible references, he mentions nothing about a revival or any other motivation that led him to the grove to seek heavenly guidance. This account, consequently, was left unpublished and largely unheard of until recently brought to light from the archives of the LDS Church by James B. Allen of Brigham Young University. Three years later, in 1838, when he begins his official history, the Mormon leader tackles the problem of working his first visitation story into the setting of the story that had already been released in his paper. Now far from Palmyra, where any might be likely to remember these dates, Joseph moves the date of the revival back to 1820 to accommodate his first vision narrative. While he is writing in 1838, he is facing division in his own ranks and strong opposition from the established churches. We are not surprised, therefore, to find the strong note of seeking forgiveness shoved into the background in favor of a condemnation of all the churches by his heavenly visitors. At this point in his career, it is not so important that he be sorry for his sins as it is that he be endorsed for his claims. By this time also, his theology has changed so that he is now advocating a plurality of gods. It is not surprising, therefore, to find the two personages have apparently become, for Smith, two separate gods, the Father and the Son. Such, we believe, is the general development by which Joseph Smith, Jr. ultimately arrived at his official story. While some may disagree with our reconstruction, all students of Mormon history will be forced to reconsider the reliability of Joseph's first vision story. We believe that the firmness of the revival date as the fall of 1824, the features of Smith's story as fitting only that date, and the absence of any Palmyra revival in the year 1820 are established beyond any reasonable doubt and will force upon Mormon writers a drastic re-evaluation of the foundation of their church. Appendix The First Vision's Slow Entrance into the LDS Story by Bill McKeever When addressing the subject of Joseph Smith's personal encounter with God the Father in Jesus Christ, Gordon B. Hinckley, the 15th president of the LDS Church, stated, 
There is no other event in all recorded history that compares with it, not even the baptism of the Savior. Testimony of the First Vision, Church News, July 1, 2006, page 2. This event, known to the Mormons as the First Vision, is one of the most extraordinary tales told by Mormonism's founder. However, if this event plays such a major role in Mormonism's history, why do we find no mention of it among the writings of early LDS leaders or members, including Joseph Smith? Rather than explain what I mean by asking the above question, I will allow Mormon historian James B. Allen to give a rundown of the facts surrounding the First Vision and its suspicious absence in the story of the LDS Church for at least its first two decades of existence. In an article titled, The Significance of Joseph Smith's First Vision in Mormon Thought, that was published in Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, Autumn 1966, page 30 and 32, Mr. Allen wrote, According to Joseph Smith, he told the story of the vision immediately after it happened in the early spring of 1820. As a result, he said, he received immediate criticism in the community. There is little, if any, evidence, however, that by the early 1830s, Joseph Smith was telling the story in public. At least if he were telling it, no one seemed to consider it important enough to have recorded it at the time, and no one was criticizing him for it. Not even in his own history did Joseph Smith mention being criticized in this period for telling the story of the first vision. The interest, rather, was in the Book of Mormon, and the various angelic visitations connected to its origin. The fact that none of the available contemporary writings about Joseph Smith in the 1830s, none of the publications of the church in that decade, and no contemporary journal or correspondence yet discovered mentions the story of the first vision, is convincing evidence that, at best, it received only limited circulation in those early days. In February 1830, for example, a farmer who lived about 50 miles from Palmyra, New York, wrote a letter describing the religious fervor in western New York, and particularly the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. No mention was made, however, of the idea that Joseph Smith had beheld deity. The earliest anti-Mormon literature attacked the Book of Mormon and the character of Joseph Smith, but never mentioned the first vision. Alexander Campbell, who had some reason to be especially bitter against the Mormons because of the conversion of Sidney Rigdon in 1830, published one of the first scathing denunciations of Joseph Smith in 1832. It was entitled Delusions, an Analysis of the Book of Mormon. It contained no mention of the first vision. In 1834, E.D. Howe published Mormonism's Unveiled, which contained considerable damaging material against Joseph Smith, including letters of the Mormon apostate Ezra Booth, but again, no mention of the first vision. In 1839, John Corll, another Mormon apostate, published a history of the Mormons, but he made no reference at all to Joseph Smith's claim of having conversed with the members of the Godhead. In 1842, J.B. Turner published Mormonism in All Ages, which included one of the most bitter denunciations of the Mormon prophet, yet printed, but even at this late date, no mention was made of the first vision. Apparently, not until 1843, when the New York Spectator printed a reporter's account of an interview with Joseph Smith, did a non-Mormon source publish any reference to the story of the first vision. In 1844, I, Daniel Rupp, published an original history of the religious denominations at present existing in the United States, and this work contained an account of the vision provided by Joseph Smith himself. After this time, non-Mormon sources began to refer to the story. It seems probable, however, that as far as non-Mormons were concerned, there was little, if any, awareness of it in the 1830s. The popular image of Mormon belief centered around such things as the Book of Mormon, the missionary zeal, and the concept of Zion in Missouri. As far as Mormon literature is concerned, there was apparently no reference to Joseph Smith's first vision in any published material in the 1830s. Joseph Smith's history, which was begun in 1838, was not published until it ran serially in the Times and Seasons in 1842. The famous Wentworth letter, which contained a much less detailed account of the vision, appeared March 1, 1842 in the same periodical. Introductory material to the Book of Mormon, 
as well as publicity about it, told of Joseph Smith's obtaining the gold plates and evangelic visitations, but nothing was printed that remotely suggested earlier visitations. In 1833, the Church published the Book of Commandments, forerunner to the present Doctrine and Covenants, and again no reference was made to Joseph's first vision, although several references were made to the Book of Mormon and the circumstances of its origin. The first regular periodical to be published by the Church was The Evening and Morning Star, but its pages reveal no effort to tell the story of the first vision to its readers, nor do the pages of the Latter-day Saint Messenger and Advocate printed in Kirtland, Ohio, from October 1834 to September 1836. In this newspaper, Oliver Cowdery, who was second only to Joseph Smith in the early organization of the church, published a series of letters dealing with the origin of the church. These letters were written with the approval of Joseph Smith, but they contain no mention of any vision prior to those connected with the Book of Mormon. In 1835, the Doctrine and Covenants was printed in Kirtland, Ohio, and its preface declared that it contained the leading items of religion which we have professed to believe. Included in the books were the Lectures on Faith, a series of seven lectures which had been prepared for the School of the Prophets in Kirtland in 1834 and 35. It is interesting to note that in demonstrating the doctrine that the Godhead consists of two separate personages, no mention was made of Joseph Smith having seen them, nor was any reference made to his first vision in any part of the publication. The Times and Seasons began publication in 1839, but as indicated above, the story of the vision was not told in its pages until 1842. For all this, it would appear that the general church membership did not receive information about the first vision until the 1840s, and that the story certainly did not hold the prominent place in Mormon thought as it does today. Allen offers several suggestions as to why the story is suspiciously missing. One explanation he proffers is that Smith may have felt that experiences such as these should be kept from the general public because of their extremely sacred nature. However, despite Allen's admission that no contemporary journal or correspondence yet discovered mentioned the story of the first vision, he believes that Smith did relate his story in private conversation. If so, are we to assume that everyone who allegedly knew of this story had the will to set aside its evangelistic capabilities when speaking to a skeptical prospective convert? Is this even remotely reasonable when one considers that Smith's encounter has profound importance in bolstering Mormonism's current view of the Godhead? Consider also that such sacredness didn't seem to prohibit the LDS Church from eventually using this narrative as a missionary tool. One obvious conclusion is that this event never happened, and that Smith later conjured up the notion as an attempt to give his story some credibility. Mormons, however, will be hard-pressed to accept such an explanation, for in doing so, they lend credence to an ultimatum given by Hinckley in 1961 when he said, I would like to say that this cause is either true or false. Either this is the kingdom of God, or it is a sham and a delusion. Either Joseph talked with the Father and the Son, or he did not. If he did not, we are engaged in blasphemy.